Okay, welcome to Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio. We are actually a combined show of the Progressive News Network as well as the Environmental Justice Report. I'm Janine Moloff, the host and producer. Well, this week, if you saw our advert, um, and I can't, I can't guarantee that you would have seen it because, again, Facebook keeps putting me lower down in their algorithm for some reason, but the headline of the show very simply says, Trump must be criminally prosecuted in order to save the nation. I don't know how to make it any more succinct than that. You know, I, I was watching, um, I believe it was Face the Nation this morning, and, you know, they like to have, like, two Republicans and two Democrats on, both from the political arena and from journalism. And the Republican they continually have on from the political realm is uh, Chris Christie, who continually makes excuses for Donald Trump, even though Chris Christie is a seasoned prosecutor. He knows better. Doesn't matter. Um, And so Christie was, you know, making excuses saying, well, especially when it came to taking these classified documents, some of which were top secret, some were in a classification way beyond top secret, that they can only be viewed by certain specified people on a need-to-know basis only and only in a very secure room. The security is, you know, it is uh, I'd say tighter than you would see on an old Mission Impossible TV series. So, Oh, excuse me. Um, so Chris Christie was saying, well, he thought that Trump took the documents because he wanted some sort of a trophy that didn't mean any harm. Well, you know, Chris Christie knows full well it doesn't matter what Donald Trump's intent was. He broke the law, period. Furthermore, he took classified and top secret documents and he transported them in an unsafe way and left them in insecure, unsecure type rooms that almost anyone could have accessed. Uh, do I believe the bromide that Trump just wanted a trophy? Well, Trump might have wanted a trophy, yeah, but no, I don't believe that's it. I believe Donald Trump was looking to extort the U.S. government so that they couldn't pursue charges. And I honestly think that nothing could have stopped Trump from allowing people to make copies and selling our secrets, period. Now, I'm not saying that's what Trump did. I'm saying this is my theory. I think it needs to be looked into. And as for Chris Christie, I think he's full of crap. But anyway, um, this is part of, you know, kind of a new series. We're calling this the corruption report because whether it's Democrats or Republicans, corruption has become not just epidemic but endemic systemic within and uh, it has to stop so this week the first story is I'm going to discuss why Donald Trump must be criminally prosecuted in order to save the republic again not only did Trump break multiple federal laws the espionage law as well as the presidential records act but set a precedent which will only encourage more illegal behavior from the extremists in the GOP I want to reiterate, no president is above the law, period. Furthermore, Trump has been aided uh, by federal judge Aileen Mercedes Cannon, who he appointed, actually, 
as she literally halted the full criminal investigation being conducted by the DOJ. And she did that through giving the special master certain directions that were not just inappropriate, but there's quite a few um, uh, quite a few judges, including not just on the liberal side, but also on the conservative side, that have said that Judge Cannon's behavior is highly unethical and that she should be investigated. That will be a different show, though. Um, the fact is, Trump stealing national security records is far more serious than the Watergate case. It's far more serious than Hillary's emails. It's far more serious than whether Al Franken was ignorant with some women. This is something that we have to really look at very carefully. We just do. Um, not to mention the fact that Trump has sympathies that uh, – not just sympathies. Trump seems to feel loyalty towards Vladimir Putin as opposed to you know, our own government. So Trump placed our national security in dire jeopardy at an incalculable risk. His motive is irrelevant, period. So that's story number one. Now, story number two deals with the very law which enabled the Flint water crisis that we talked about last week, namely the Emergency Manager Act. Now, this law basically places an unofficial poll tax, in my opinion, on lower-income municipalities. It basically says, and it, was start, it really began in Michigan, it says that if your jurisdiction is deemed too poor, local elections can and will be overturned by the state. This law was spearheaded by multiple far-right think tanks, including the DeVos-funded Mackinac Center. So that's what we're talking about. So let's start with, and now, of course, we have our jackass of the week. And, um, you know, you're going to find that out at the end of the program. All right, so let's move on to story number one. Uh, I have this story here. Give me a second. Click onto it. This is a an editorial that was written back in July, July 24th, 2022, and it was in um, the com, written by John Nichols. Now, John Nichols is, uh, excuse me, hmm. lost my place again here. Here we go. So John Nichols is a very experienced journalist. He, uh, he, right now he's the associate editor of the Cap Times since 1993. Uh, he is a well-known progressive. He's the author of seven books on politics and the media, and he also writes about electoral politics and public policy for The Nation magazine. Uh, his books are best known, um, you know, a series he did with uh, Kenny McChesney. Um, and he brought policy to a point where it makes sense to the average person. So John Nichols wrote this piece, and he puts it right out there. I would have said the same thing. Here's the headline. There's a word for Trump's crime, treason. I don't think that's histrionic. I think that's accurate. Grab a little drink of my cranberry juice here. So let's get into it. So Donald Trump has tried to play this game that he was just an innocent bystander. The people loved him so much they decided to risk life and limb to attack the Capitol, uh, which is asinine. It just is. It, it's it's so 
childish that it's it's much akin to um not only the dog eat my homework but as your as a kid shoving the homework down the poor dog's throat we know that the january 6th committee from the house um had their final session last week where it's they voted to yes subpoena donald trump to make him testify and that's long overdue. But this piece by Nichols was written back in July. And um, this was during the committee's uh, televised meetings. And what John Nichols wrote, quote, we now have, as journalist Carl Bernstein explains, the portrait of, quote, an out-of-control, criminal, seditious, mad president, end quote. Now, I agree with Bernstein, Okay. Donald Trump was out of control. He has a history of criminal behavior that has been well-documented now. He has a history of sedition, well-documented by now. And perhaps he is insane, mad, if you will. Perhaps he's just corrupt. So Nichols in this article goes on to say, what words should be used to describe Trump's criminality? Okay? So... Then Nichols goes to a quote from former federal prosecutor Glenn Kirshner. And Mr. Kirshner's been very vocal about his opinions. Uh, again, Mr. Kirshner, fully licensed attorney, former federal prosecutor. And he described Trump's actions on January 6th, where he refused to act to stop the violence. Uh, and instead, according to the record, Trump was calling senators trying to get them to overturn the results. And Kirshner has one word for Trump's actions on January 6th, treasonous. Kirshner went on to say um, that if you referenced uh, the definition of treason according to the Constitution, Kirshner said the following, quote, What we know, based on all the evidence in these public hearings, is Donald Trump levied war. He, he waged war against the United States, against the democratic process, end quote. I agree. Um, lost my place again. Sorry, folks. And it wasn't just uh, Kirshner. Repre back in July, Rep Republican Representative Joe Walsh said the following, quote, it wasn't dereliction of duty. It was treason, end quote. That's former Republican Representative Joe Walsh back this Thursday. MSNBC host Joe Scarbonough, uh, who was also a former Republican member of Congress, said before the hearing, quote, Donald Trump committed treason against the United States of America. If you're wondering what January 6th is about, it's about treason, end quote. So then Nichols' piece goes into the definition of the word treason according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And it is defined as the following, quote, the offense of attempting by overt acts to overthrow the government of the state to which the offender owes allegiance, end quote. Fits the events of January 6th, if you ask me. Now, excuse me, get a little drink here. John Nichols goes on to say in his article that he doubts if Trump will ever be formally charged with treason. Um, I think he should be. I think that we have allowed politics to enter into this too much. If anybody else 
had done what Donald Trump had done on January 6th, in addition to taking documents that they had no right to, we would have already been charged with treason. We would have already been sitting in a jail cell. Our assets would have been frozen. Our passport, if we had one, would have been taken, and we would have been held without bail, period. Donald Trump should be no exception, and that includes his grown kids, uh, anybody who assisted him, lawyer or otherwise. Now, back in July, uh, one of the committee chairs for the January 6th committee, Benny Thompson, who's a Democrat from Mississippi, he began the hearing with an announcement, quote, if there is no accountability for January 6th, for every part of the scheme, I fear that we will not overcome the ongoing threat to our democracy. There must be stiff consequences for those responsible, end quote. Now, those consequences will be determined by the DOJ, the Department of Justice. Whether or not um, Merrick Garland has the cojones to do what he's supposed to do, I don't know. Okay, I know that they're afraid... Uh, that is Trump supporters say, you know, they threaten that if, if Donald is uh, indicted, there'll be blood in the streets. You know, my response is to that. Fine. We still need to indict Donald Trump, make him face justice, as well as everybody that helped him. General Mike Flynn, are you listening? And if these idiots decide to attack, we sit back from a vantage point, we film them. We download the film everywhere on the Internet, so there is no denying it. And then we force DOJ to criminally prosecute. That's it. It's that simple. Because if we don't, it's going to get worse. Um, another constitutional scholar, uh, profet, legal profet, law professor Lawrence Tribe, um, said that the January 6th committees made it easier for DOJ to identify crimes that the Trump administration and Trump has done, up to and including charges of seditious conspiracy. Uh, and Tr Professor Tribe notes that seditious conspiracy is, quote, just short of treason, as well as uh, aiding and abetting a violent insurrection. Lawrence Tribe, again, argued that Donald Trump on January 6th acted as, quote, an arsonist who sets fire to a building and then watches while it burns rather than turning on the hose, end quote. I agree. Okay. This just says it all. Let's move on to our next story. This is about, that was about the January 6th thing. Again, the next part of this, uh, this was in Newsweek, and this was published October 14th, so a couple days ago. Uh, it this was in Newsweek. Uh, the headline is Trump's treasonous January 6th crimes proved beyond reasonable doubt, Kirshner. And this is by Zoe Strazuski. Okay. So once again, they had the final committee meeting, and that resulted in a vote, a unanimous vote, to subpoena Donald Trump. Now, this, is, this article talks more about Glenn Kirshner again. Kirshner, as I said before, is a former federal prosecutor. He did attend the hearing, and he posted a, a video on his YouTube page that you can definitely look at, uh, where he basically explained the presentation, he paraphrased things, um, and he laid out what he described as, quote, devastating evidence of Trump's guilt, end quote. Uh, to put it bluntly, 
Republican Representative Liz Cheney, who was the Republican vice chair of the January 6th committee, um, she stated that, quote, the central cause of the events on January 6th was one man, Donald Trump, end quote. Now, Liz Cheney is far from some wild-eyed liberal. She is very much a Republican conservative. She comes from a heavy-duty Republican conservative family, okay, dating back to the Nixon years. So when people claim, whoa, she's a traitor, no, she's not. She just didn't want to go along with treason, all right? So I at least have a little bit of respect for her. Now, does that mean I'm going to go, woohoo, she's a hero? No, she's not a hero. She's doing what she's supposed to be doing. Oh, I think that we've hit a point in our society where, honestly, um, there are people out there that think they deserve to be called a hero or deserve an award for fulfilling their duties as they're supposed to. That's nonsense. Okay. So Liz Cheney also during this session talked about how, um, you know, Trump had a premeditated plan. He was going to declare election fraud before Election Day, and then he was going to basically, quote, invent and spread lies about the widespread fraud, end quote. And that's exactly what happened. Um, so, you know, once again, uh, this is pretty simple you know, Representative Benny Thompson said, quote, we have left no doubt, none, that Donald Trump led an effort to upend American democracy that directly resulted in the violence of January 6th, end quote. Thompson went on to say, quote, he is the one person at the center of the story of what happened on January 6th. We want to hear from him, end quote. Um, so, you know, once again, Kirshner saying, He's convinced of Trump's guilt. Lawrence Tribe tweeted the following, quote, If you're not watching the hearing live, the one that ran this past week, you should be. The evidence set forth leaves no reasonable doubt, and no reasonable doubt is in all caps. I'll say it again. Lawrence Tribe tweeted, quote, If you're not watching the hearing live, you should be. The evidence set forth leaves no reasonable doubt that Trump personally led the plot to overturn the government by violence if necessary. A.G. Garland no longer has any alternative but to indict him. I think that's a really important point. Okay? I'm tired of hearing the political excuses that it might hurt the election or whatever. The bottom line is this. That last hearing, Professor Lawrence Tribe is right. It leaves Attorney General Merrick Garland no alternative but to indict Donald J. Trump. It's just that it's that obvious. Um, so Kirshner, Glenn Kirshner also acknowledged that, um, you know, trying to hold Trump accountable may never happen. Um, I, I, I won't accept that. All right. I absolutely will not. I mean, think about it. If we let Donald Trump get away with this, do you really think he'll just calm down? Seriously, I'll say he won't. And there is precedent for that. So that means our next story. Okay. So this was um, an article 
that published, let's see now, was it yesterday? Yeah, yesterday, the 15th. This is in a publication called The Bulwark, B-U-L-W-A-R-K. And this is an article, uh, uh, um, an editorial written by law professor Lawrence H. Tribe and Dennis Aftergut. Okay. And if I scroll down here, give me a second, folks. Lawrence H. Tribe is the Carl M. Loeb University Professor Emeritus and professor and a professor of constitutional law emeritus at a little place called the Harvard Law School. Okay? So he's not just some little attorney. And Dennis Aftergod is a former federal prosecutor who is currently of counsel to a group called Lawyers Defending American Democracy, which is a very interesting group. We're going to be talking about this on this show in future programs. Okay? This is finally some lawyers that are standing up to the fraudsters in their own profession. So if a Republican wants to try and claim, well, this article was written by two newbies. No, it wasn't. Okay. They're at the top of their game. So what's the headline to this editorial in the bulwark? And this is not just about January 6th. This is about the fact that Trump took, illegally stole national security secrets. Okay. The headline is the Munich model for Trump's national security extortion. And the subtitle, the president does not own America's national secrets. So in this, both tribe and aftergut describe something that took place similar, a similar thing that took place 80 years ago. All right. So there was another politician that really wasn't slapped down too hard after doing similar, okay? And 80 years ago would have been September 29th, 1938, okay? It was in Munich, and it was two days before an established deadline that Hitler, Adolf Hitler had announced for invading Czechoslovakia, okay? Now, at that time, the British Prime Minister was Neville Chamberlain, not Winston Churchill, and Chamberlain was a fool. And he said, okay, fine, and he agreed to meet with then German, with the German chancellor. And that's as documented by history.com. They signed what's called a non-aggression pact. And what it did was it gave territory to Hitler without consulting the Czechs. Sounds a whole lot like what Putin wants, doesn't it? And you know Trump would go along with it. So what Lawrence Tribe and Dennis Aftergut are doing is they're comparing um, what happened when Hitler wasn't slapped down in his early days to what Trump is doing if he doesn't get slapped down as well, legally speaking. Okay. So basically what happened was Neville Chamberlain yielded. He gave away uh, part of Czechoslovakia, even though he had no right to do so. All right. And that was in return for a non-aggression pact. Okay. But there's, nothing there was nothing to hold Hitler back really then 11 months later what happened Hitler ignored that pact pact they invaded Poland and they began the second world war so according to this article um tribe and aftergut wrote the following quote former president Donald J Trump is mimicking Munich by leveraging claims to things that aren't his America's national secrets against something which does not belong to him, 
the public order, which he threatens to overturn, end quote. Okay? And, again, um, Tribe and Aftergut also explained that on October 8th, uh, Maggie, Al- Maggie Haberman and Michael Schmidt for the New York Times reported that in 21, 2021, Trump was trying to negotiate a deal with the nat- National Archives where he'd return presidential documents, quote, including some marked top secret that he had spirited away to his beachfront resort at Mar-a-Lago. And it goes on, quote, but Trump would only do so in exchange for the archives giving him other government documents, which he hoped to use to rewrite the history of his initial accession to the presidency in 2016, end quote. Okay, so the question in my mind is this. Why was the National Archives even trying to negotiate with this criminal? The National Archives should have issued one letter with DOJ's signature on it saying, you have documents in your possession that do not belong to you. They involve the national security. You must return all of them immediately and basically uh, submit to an entire security uh, investigation. And I'd give them 24 hours if that, if they did not respond, and I don't care if they wanted to get some sort of stalling tactic, whatever, then DOJ would have come. Because those of you that think that the, quote, raid on Mar-a-Lago was this illegal raid, no, it wasn't. The Trump legal team had months to get those documents back, months, which is absurd in and of itself. They refused to obey multiple court-ordered subpoenas. When you fail to obey a court-ordered subpoena, guess what that judge does? They issue a warrant, and if they need to search, then they give the cops a search warrant, period. And that's what happened. It wasn't an illegal raid. The Trump legal team refused to obey official subpoenas, So the court had every right to issue, at the very least, a search warrant. He's lucky they didn't issue a warrant for his arrest right then and there for um, not only obstruction of justice, but also for contempt of court. That's it. If you or I had done that, our butts would have been in a jail cell. This is nonsense. Which, again, makes me wonder how many people in the federal government are still Trump sympathizers. You have to ask that question because Donald Trump's not a technical person. For him to know what kinds of documents he needed to take, he had to have a lot of help. And not just from expensive lawyers or agency heads. Because the agency heads that he appointed didn't know much either, usually. They were just political appointees. He had to have had help from people that were careerist in those relevant agencies, probably middling level, who had intimate knowledge of those secrets. So right now, there should be a thorough investigation of everybody. Well, with special, um, you know, a special investigation on uh, those that are Trump loyalists. Donald Trump's not smart enough to pull this off by himself. And I don't understand why the National Archives mollycoddled him like that. I wouldn't have. So apparently, according to this article, the government materials that Donald wanted to exchange to get the ones he wanted uh, were the ones he 
was unable to steal. Okay. And according to this quote, the government materials he wanted, in other words, Trump, were ones that he evidently failed to steal but thought would serve his purposes. They were documents that he supposed would clear him from suspicion still lingering from the Mueller investigation into his 2016 campaign's involvement with, with Russia, suspicions he believed cast a public cloud over the legitimacy of his term in the White House, end quote. Okay. So you can call Donald Trump a narcissist. He probably is. You can say he's mentally off his rocker. I really don't care. What I do care about is the law. Donald Trump broke the law. Um, there's been a series of judges that have failed to do their duty. Okay? Uh, Donald Trump does not enjoy any level of executive privilege. He is no longer the president. Executive privilege does not continue past the time that you are president. It just doesn't. Okay? Okay, so the fact is Donald Trump compromised our national security. That's it. These are documents that were supposed to be kept under lock and key, not in a closet, basement closet of Mar-a-Lago. These are documents that even if we got everything back, we have no assurance that copies were not made and sold to the highest bidder. Okay. Now this article in the board goes on to say, um, it reminds us that Trump was impeached the first time in December of 2019, quote, for his effort to exploit the power he had seized by becoming president. In his perfect call to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, Trump threatened to withhold from Ukraine hundreds of millions of dollars of congressionally authorized military assistance unless Zelensky announced an investigation of Trump's election rival, Joe Biden, and his son, Hunter. Now, When you have a president who is not only appearing to act like a blackmailer, but when you have a president who is closer to our enemy, namely Vladimir Putin, than they are to fellow Americans in the U.S. government, Houston, we have a problem. Okay? Now, this article goes on to explain that Michael Cohn, who is one of Trump's attorneys and considered, quote, a fixer, um, said what I thought, actually, uh, that the explanation for Trump's taking the documents, that, quote, Trump anticipated being indicted, hence he stole some of our country's most closely guarded secrets, including secrets whose exposure to our adversaries could have significant consequences as a get-out-of-jail-free card, end quote. Now, that's what Michael Cohen said, and Democratic Senator Tim Kaine Proposed the same explanation as documented by Business Insider. I've been saying that for over a year now. See, that's where Chris Christie really needs to be removed from the panel at Face the Nation because he comes on and he's so utterly unprepared. When does he ever offer documentation? He doesn't. When you listen to this program, I'll say, as documented by, I quote, I attribute, 
You don't see that happening there. And he was talking about, well, you know, Donald's intentions. I don't give a damn about Donald's intentions. I agree with Michael Cohn. This is something that I've thought for a long time now. He took those documents to, as leverage, where basically said, if you indict me, I'll release these to our enemies. Boom. Okay. And according to DOJ in this article that I'm talking about from the Bulwark, uh, quote, Trump continues to hold the government's classified documents in other locations. Now that's something, right? And that's as documented by the NewYorkTimes.com. So it's not just at Mar-a-Lago. He's got classified documents elsewhere, according to DOJ. It goes on to say, quote, And we know that the court-authorized search of Mar-a-Lago revealed empty folders with markings such as top secret. Is it out of the realm of possibility should Donald Trump that should Donald Trump be held to account in the criminal courts, he might seek to bargain for his freedom with our country's secrets, our national security, and the lives of those who guard both, end quote. Makes perfect sense. Again, um, as documented by the New York Times and USA Today. All right, it's not a hard thing to figure out, okay? So, you know, once again... I don't know what Merrick Garland's waiting for. All right? The case has been made. And comparing Donald Trump to Hitler in the early days is accurate. One final nail in the coffin of this story. This is a piece that was on Common Dreams, and it ran October 15th, written by Jessica Corbett. And this deals with Trump's response to the January 6th committee um, voting to subpoena him and force him to appear. Now, Trump couldn't resist, right? So the headline is, as Trump issues sharply self-incriminating subpoena response, DOJ urged to act. Okay? Um, And there's a quote here by some legal expert um, of the panel. Quote, I think they were trying to hand the Justice Department all the evidence on a silver platter. End quote. And I agree. Okay, so the Donald issued this 14-page response, and in it, it's just so ridiculous, all right? Uh, He's got this this letter, part of the letter says the ex-president, well, it began with uh, Trump's talking about his big lie, uh, quote, the presidential election of 2020 was rigged and stolen. The letter continues, quote, the same group of radical left Democrats who utilized their majority position in Congress to create the fiction of Russia, 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 impeachment hoax number one, impeachment hoax number two, the 48 million Mueller report, which ended in no collusion, exclamation point, Ukraine, 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 the atrocious and illegal spying on my campaign and so much more are the people who created this committee of highly partisan political hacks and thugs whose sole function is to destroy the lives of the many hardworking American patriots whose records in life have been unblemished until this point of attempted ruination. Wow, apparently the Donald loves run-on sentences. Uh, goes on to say, quote, the double standard of the unselects between what has taken place on the right and what's taken place with radical left, lawless groups such as Antifa, Black Lives Matter, others is starting is startling and will never be acceptable, even to those who will be writing the history of what you have done to America, uh, end quote. 
it goes on to say, same letter, quote, this memo is being written to express our anger, disappointment, and complaint with all the hundreds of millions of dollars spent on what many consider to be a charade and witch hunt. Despite strong and powerful requests, you have not spent even a short moment on examining the massive election fraud that took place during the 2020 presidential election that targeted only those who were concerned Americans protesting the fraud itself, etc. Okay, end quote. So there's so many things wrong with this letter. First of all, it's going to be, say, an essay that – uh, I would say an eighth grader or seventh, an eighth grader submitted. It'd be a D or an F. Okay, um, it just would. But the fact is, you know, what he's doing is he's putting every dog whistle meant. It's like you know, waving a red flag in front of a bull. You know, Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Um, and then he blames these groups. Okay. What was it here? Antifa. Okay. For those of you Republican or conservative idiots who might be listening in to to kind of figure out what I'm saying, there's no such thing as Antifa. Antifa or Antifa means anti-fascist. There is no Antifa group. It doesn't exist. It's not my fault that you guys are not only stupid but, you know, functionally illiterate. There is a group. On the slogan, Black Lives Matter. But, you know, as somebody who is liberal, I am tired of being called all these names. My attitude is that if anybody from the GOP or the far right calls me anything that is even the slightest bit um, libelous, slanderous, or defamatory, I'll trace it to source, and I will sue the jerk out of existence. And that's what I urge everyone to do. We shouldn't take this. We just shouldn't. Uh, it's nonsense. But apparently, um, Trump's response really made him look guiltier. Uh, according to Noah Bookbinder, who is an exec with the watchdog group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, otherwise known as CREW, um, he noted that Trump's response, quote, doubles down on the bogus claim that he won the election and on siding with the violent insurrectionists. Uh, it also goes on to say, quote, that he not only tried to overturn an election and cited insurrection, but he is, he is still doing it, end quote. And it's true. You know, his letter is incredibly, incredibly, um, um, oh, Lord, what's the word? His letter is self-incriminating, okay? And he's too stupid to understand that. Let's hope he makes some more stupid mistakes. Um, You know, even Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who, frankly, is a corporate dem, said, uh, quote, Donald Trump must testify before Congress. Representative Ayanna Presley, a Democrat from Massachusetts, she's also um, a member of the squad and very brilliant lawyer. She also demanded, quote, the former occupant of the White House um, testify about his role in inciting the violent white supremacist attack on our democracy, end quote. Um, you know, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib said, she tweeted, quote, 
Donald Trump must be held accountable for his role in inciting a violent coup attempt to overthrow our democracy and cling to power by any means necessary. He must testify under oath before Congress or be held in contempt. Amen, Rashida. Totally agree with her. Merrick Garland needs to stop playing politics. If these people want blood in the streets, let them hit the streets. Let these idiots try and attack. We'll film them. We'll dox them. um, And we'll make sure that every law enforcement agency in the world knows what they did. And then they will be criminally prosecuted. That's it. But Trump must be held accountable for his role along with the lawyers that helped engineer this attempted coup. Every single one of them. And if they refuse to show up, they're held in contempt. A judge issues a bench warrant, boom, and they're held in prison until they until they testify. That's it. Done playing. Um, so that's what they're really talking about. And what all this really translates into is this. Never before, at least not since the Civil War or since the time of Benedict Arnold, who was a traitor, and sold some of our military secrets to the British, have we had anybody steal national security secrets? And that's what Donald Trump did, period. It doesn't matter if you're a conservative or a flaming leftist. He stole national security secrets, period. That's it. Even a lower law, like not just the Espionage Act, but the Presidential Records Act, is very clear. It wouldn't matter, for example, if um, former President Barack Obama wrote on a post-it with little hearts, Michelle's hot. Guess what? That post-it does not belong to Barack. It belongs to the archives. That's how that works. And Trump knew it. He didn't care. Furthermore, his lawyers knew it. Steve Bannon knew it. Um, What is it? Mike... uh, um, was it Michael Miller knew it? Ivanka knew it. John Eastman knew it. They all knew it. Enough's enough. Okay, it just is. This has to happen. I don't know if it will, but it has to. Okay? So... Let's look at our next story. Okay, folks, give me a second here. I'm working on a little Chromebook, and it's kind of a pain in the tail. So last week we talked about the Flint uh, water case, and that came about because of the decisions made by emergency managers in Michigan, and they were appointed by this emergency manager law. Okay. So we're going to go to, let's see now, give me a second here, to law that led to poison Flint water. This is a good one. Let's see now. Here it is. This is an older law. This has been around for a while. So this is an article that was um given by the Center for Constitutional Rights, or CCR. And um, 
this article was published on their website uh, July of 2018. And the headline is, Law That Led to Poisoned Flint Water Racially Discriminatory Civil Rights Attorneys Say. Okay? So apparently in 2018, civil rights attorneys went to federal court and they were asking to allow a lawsuit that challenged the emergency manager law in Michigan um, as basically racially discriminatory. Okay. And what this law does is it allows the state to look at a local municipality and say, whether it's Flint or there's another one called Pontiac, Michigan. And let's say that municipality lost a lot of business and they're, they're having a hard time paying for everything. The state, this law gives the state the power, I won't say the right, because it's not right, gives the state the power to decide, hmm, well, Flint, there are poor folks there, a lot of black people, you know, they can't afford to pay their bills. Therefore, they'll have a right to democratically elected local government. So we're going to come in with our emergency manager, and we're going to toss the results of the last election, whether it's the mayor, whether it is the entire board of aldermen, whether it's the local school board, um, it doesn't matter. It's all gone. Now, we had something like that happen here in Missouri several years ago. Um, where basically the state came in, and ironically it was a Democratic governor, Jay Nixon, but his Republican counterpart was fine with it too. And because the city of St. Louis missed uh, the test scores by a fraction the first year under No Child Left Behind that the tests were even being administered, the um, publicly elected school board was a progressive one in St. Louis City. And there were a lot of racists in St. Louis, white racists, including then-Governor Jay Nixon, in my opinion, who didn't like that school board. So they went to the state, and the state basically set aside that election. And those school board members were no longer school board members, and they appointed their own board. Make no mistake about it. To put it bluntly, this is the state taking the power to disenfranchise uh, an entire city of, of citizens and not only disenfranchise them, let's say they're allowed to vote, but if the state doesn't like it, the results aren't held. The, the results can be overturned by anything the state wants. That's the same as being disenfranchised. And the criterion, they're in economic trouble. Okay, now let's look back to the old civil rights battles of the 50s and 60s literacy tests, poll taxes. How is this law not a de facto form of a poll tax? Of course it is. It is no small coincidence that the communities that have had their local elections rescinded happen to be low income and majority black or brown. There's no guesswork here. Okay. Now, there are some quotes here. There was John Philo, who is the executive director of the Sugar Law Center for Economic and Social Justice. And Mr. Philo said the following about the emergency manager law. Quote, Michigan's emergency manager statute was born from racial politics and has thrived on exploiting the racial divisions in our state. 
the toxic impacts of suspending voting rights in predominantly African-American communities and imposing emergency managers in place of elected officials will be felt for decades to come. The statute is racist at its core and cannot stand in a society that values democracy, end quote. I'll go a bit further. The statute is just plain, I'm going to say a bad word, George Carlin's going to respect me though. The statute is fucking unconstitutional. You can't suspend an entire group of Americans' right to vote. Period. It's not that it cannot stand. The people that push this should be held legally accountable. So the latest incarnation of this, as of 2018, was pub- it was called Public Act 436. And, you know, don't you love it when these dirty politicians come up with these very benign-sounding, boring-sounding acts, okay? So nobody will pay attention. But Public Act 436 does the following, quote, allows the state to replace locally elected mayors, city and town councils, and school boards in so-called financially distressed municipalities and school districts with unelected emergency managers. Emergency managers have been imposed almost exclusively upon low-income communities of color throughout the state. 50%, say it again, 50% of Michigan's black residents have been placed under emergency manager rule compared to only 2% of the state's white population. Emergency managers were directly responsible for poisoning the city of Flint's water supply after switching the source to the contaminated Flint River, end quote. I'm gonna read that last part again, okay? And this is according to Center for Constitutional um, Rights, that last sentence. Quote, emergency managers were directly responsible for poisoning the city of Flint's water supply after switching the source to the contaminated Flint River, end quote. And it's true. It goes on to say, we have another, um, another quote here, building the case. And this is from someone named Darius Charney, who is the Center for Constitutional Rights Senior Staff Attorney. Mr. Charney said the following about Public Act 436, or Michigan's emergency manager law, quote, The racial contours of Michigan's emergency manager law are undeniable. This law has been used to deprive the majority of black voters in Michigan of their right to democratically elected government. Those communities have also borne the devastating cost of the law, including the health effects of the Flint water crisis, which will affect many people for the rest of their lives. When a law so clearly harms a particular racial group, it is not only toxic, it is unconstitutional and must be struck down, end quote. Amen, Mr. Charney. Okay? And this law is unprecedented. It was the first of this type of law anywhere in the United States. Okay? And what it does is it shifts all the legislative and executive power from elected officials to appointed officials. It's according to this document. I'll, I'll read it directly as quoted. Quote, Michigan's law is unprecedented, the first such measure enacted anywhere in the United States that shifts all all legislative and executive power from elected officials to appointed officials. 
The court previously allowed claims of the law as racially discriminatory and therefore violates the Equal Protection Clause to proceed. This is Michigan's second attempt to dismiss the claim, end quote. So this law was challenged before. Court struck it down. Michigan came back. The previous version of the law was enacted in 2011. And so the voters got together and had a statewide voter referendum in 2012. And you know that's difficult to organize. But they did. And it got voted down. Think about that for a minute. Michigan had a similar emergency manager law. The people took the court, and the court said, nope, it's unconstitutional. Um, well, I'm, let me back up here. The first version of the law, I stand corrected, was in 2011. When people found out it was what it was in 2011, they were outraged. And so they organized a statewide, the entire state, voter referendum in 2012. That's moving fast. It got struck down. It was repealed. Okay. So you think that the elected officials would realize, hmm, the voters slapped us down. We better not do this again. Didn't happen. A month later, quote, the lame duck Michigan legislature, so I'm going to read again, quote, one month later, in other words, after the voter referendum repealed this, quote, the lame duck Michigan legislature enacted the new law challenged today. The case in court today in 2018, that is, Bellant v. Snyder, follows an earlier case, Brown v. Snyder, that challenged Michigan's previous emergency manager law. That case was rendered moot when the law was repealed, end quote. So basically, when the citizens repealed this, the case didn't go any further. Going back to this quote, the case is being litigated by the Sugar Law Center for Economic and Social Justice, the National Lawyers Guild, Sanders Law Firm, Constitutional Litigation Associates, and the Center for Constitutional Rights. Everybody needs to pay some serious attention to this. They just do. The idea that these people in the legislature could just set aside an election that they didn't like, you know, or, you know, basically create a new law after one was repealed, That that is arrogance on steroids but it also shows their intent all right so how did this happen right well there's a little bit of history here no shock there right give me a second so how did we get here look back at michigan's um emergency manager law okay and this is from NPR, okay, um, back in 2016, actually. And this was um, a piece done by Josh Hakala, National Public Radio. The headline in 2016, the headline is, how did we get here? A look back at Michigan's emergency manager law. Excuse me. So there's been some history of this. So the state of Michigan... Um, has been doing this for a while, all right? Uh, according to this article, quote, the concept of the state moving in to take power away from local officials to fix a financial crisis is not new. In fact, Public Act 72, known as the Local Government Fiscal Responsibility Act, 
was passed in 1990, end quote. So how did that work? Okay, and it was under Democratic Governor James Blanchard, passed when he was in office. And then the latest edition was uh, former Governor Rick Snyder. So Michigan State University economist Eric Scorsone, um, who is also the founding director of the Michigan State University Extension Center for Local Government Finance and Policy, um, looked at this. And according to Scorsone, this law began, it comes from this legal precedent, this, this idea, and this is really convoluted theory, okay? Scorsone is explaining that there was a legal precedent, the idea that, quote, local government is a branch of Michigan state government. So in a way, an emergency manager is just acting to solve a problem area within the state government, end quote. Okay, that is a flawed argument, first of all. Local government is not a branch of a state government. That's nonsense. Um, but Scorsoni said the Public Act 72 really wasn't hardly ever used, um, you know, in the 20 years that it was in effect. And that went through administrations of Governor John Engler and Governor Gen Jennifer Granholm. Um, and then Snyder came into office. And one of the first bills that Snyder signed happily in 2011 was Public Act 4, which Scorsoni called, quote, a beefed-up emergency manager law. So then Michigan voters rejected that law. They had a referendum in 2012, and then what happened? Public Act 436 was passed by the legislature. They didn't care. The public said no. Hell no. Um, now, there were some changes with Public Act 436. So some of the changes included they required the state to pay the salary of the emergency manager as opposed to the local government. Um, and let's see, also the local government uh, had the power to vote out the emergency manager after 18 months. But the most controversial change was that, quote, it stipulated that the public could not repeal it. Now that's damning. So when Snyder got in, this Public Act 436, in the law, written into the law, the public could not repeal it. I guess Governor Snyder and the GOP never heard of the Bill of Rights. I think it's, let's see now, what is it, the Ninth or the Tenth Amendment? Give me a second, folks. I don't have it in front of me. Give me a second. Sorry for the pauses. Yeah, um, the power is not delegated to, it's the 10th, uh, not delegated to the United States by the Constitution or pro prohibited by it to the states or reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Okay, now let's look at the 9th. Okay. This is the one I like. There are a lot of GOPers kind of cling to the 10th Amendment, uh, especially the part that it goes to this legislature, but the 9th Amendment says very clearly, the enumeration in the Constitution, in other words, enumeration being the listing of rights, uh, of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, end quote. So how in the hell can uh, the Michigan legislature t write a law saying that the people can't repeal it? That is a direct denial of their Ninth Amendment rights. But they did it. Okay. So this is really the most damning part of it. 
All right. Um, there's more to it. So some of these laws, like PA 436, did have a few choices, but the choices weren't much of a choice. Like these these in these communities that are in financial distress, they can either choose between a consent agreement. When the consent agreement, you can keep the local officials in charge, but they have to take orders from the emergency manager. Um, and it's like a pre-bankruptcy process, which is neutral evaluation or filing for bankruptcy directly and having an emergency manager appointed. So basically, it's their choices are no choices. Um, basically denies the people the right to even repeal the law. To me, that's the most damning thing right there. This is a law that never should have seen the light of day. Okay? So, who's behind it? Mm. Give me a second. Power's behind. Give me a minute. Sorry, folks. Emergency, manager, law. <laughs> Give me a second here. So these emergency managers, it's not just taking over and tossing the results of an election. They can do more than that. Okay? This is the part that's really scary. So they're based on an article written in 2012 by, um, excuse me, by Paula Bowd from the Center for Public Integrity, uh, the headlines, Michigan's Hostile Takeover. And this really, the powers that emergency managers have in Michigan are almost unrestrained. Uh, emergency managers, according to this article, um, can nullify labor contracts. Okay? Just toss them. Uh, I'll read straight from this. Um and this was this new act passed in 2012 that Michigan stuck with now, that they're still dealing with. Under the law, um, quote, these emergency managers can nullify labor contracts, privatize public services, sell off city property, and even dismiss elected officials. Okay? How's that? And one of the first emergency managers was a man named... Um, Let's see now. I was just looking at, I think it was Lewis Schimmel. And Mr. Schimmel was assigned to this community of, I think it was, let's see now, Pontiac, Michigan. Yes. Okay. Um, so let's see, I'm looking at this here. And according to this article, quote, Schimmel got to work quickly firing the city clerk, city attorney, and director of public works and outsourcing several city departments. City firefighters were told that they would be fired if the department was not absorbed by Waterford Townships. Schimmel had proposed putting nearly every city property up for sale, including City Hall, the police station, fire stations, water pumping stations, the library, the golf course, and two cemeteries, end quote. Okay. This is insane. All right. Um, 
say this is draconian is an understatement. Okay. Something needs to be said about Mr. Schimmel. Okay. Think, okay, how did they find this guy, Lewis Schimmel's, one of the first emergency managers? Well, Mr. Schimmel is basically uh, considered a, he is a former adjunct scholar at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Okay, so the Mackinac Center for Public Policy is one of those right-wing think tanks, and it is funded by multiple people, including um, uh, through the Kochs, K-O-C-H, including through the DeVos and Prince families as well. You know, Betsy DeVos, her husband, um, what was it, Richard DeVos, I believe. Now, you do realize the DeVos family built their their initial fortune on the scam that is known as Amway. And then, of course, her brother, Eric Prince. These are the people funding Mackinac Center. Do you see what's happening here? All right, this is about basically um, stripping low-income and communities of color of their right to not only vote, but to have their, their votes honored and obeyed. Uh, nothing like this should have ever taken place. But this is why we have the Flint water crisis. Now, we've talked about it on the Environmental Justice Report before. We will probably go into it in more detail on another um, another show. I don't want to toss too much at y'all. Um, you know, this is what we're dealing with, folks. This is what we're dealing with. So now you understand a little bit more. So basically, the Mackinac Center was behind this, as well as several other very, um, I won't even say conservative, okay, these are groups that hate democracy, okay? Um, here, give me a second. Sorry about that. Give me a second. All righty. Uh, so, basically... This was the time period of the emergent Tea Party, and, you know, these were quite a few conservative groups that, um, you know, they wanted to control everything, all right? These are corporate interests that want to steal everything, in my opinion, okay? Um and, and this is, you know, what we're talking about. So, yes, the, the Mackinac Center is a big part of it. Um, and the Mackinac Center, as I said a few minutes ago, they're libertarian, they're conservative. The Mackinac Center has received, and this is where Mr. Schimmel does his writing, um, the Mackinac Center received funding from foundations of Charles Koch, um, the Walton family, and Dick DeVos, the former CEO of Amway. Okay. Um, this is not by accident at all. All right. The Mackinac Center has been behind a lot of bad things. And, oh, yeah, guess what? The Mackinac Center is also a member 
at the time of this article, and he has been a member of the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. Now, that's as of, I want to make sure I'm accurate here. Let's see, as of 2012, okay. They might have quit by now, but in the past, they have been an active um, force under ALEC. So, again, these are anti-democracy forces that are being funded by billionaires. Make no mistake about it. These are people that despise democratic rule. And, you know, you have to kind of think of it this way. What is a corporation? It's a dictatorship. I mean, you know, this is why I've always thought when they try and push uh, business people for political office, I usually not impressed because, again, I don't believe you can spend your whole life in a situation like corp- a corporation that is a dictatorship and then say, but I believe in democracy. I don't think so. I don't think your mentality is going to lean that way. But, no, Alex got its paw prints on this. Um so, in fact, um, it is it, this law was also listed in one of Alex's reports on state fiscal policy, and the report was called the State Budget Reform Toolkit and Rich States, Poor States. Okay, and this is from an article in, again, Mother Jones, um, written by Paula Bass. It's the same article. Okay. So you see that it's the same it's the same garbage that comes around each and every time okay um and this is something that we really need to you know to look at now back in 2012 uh democratic rep john conyers did ask the department of justice to review the law as documented by huffington post um and consider does this violate the Voting Rights Act, as well as the contract clause of the Constitution. Um, But I don't think anything happened from it. And I don't really see um, corporate Dems fighting this. All right. So, you know, once again, this is about taking over state legislatures and stripping the public of the right to have their votes not only counted, but respected and obeyed. It's not by accident. It's the same people. Okay? So now, hopefully, I feel a little enlightened. Now I'm going to take another little drink here. And this information in Mother Jones came from the Center for Public Integrity. Wonderful group. Um, now we're getting ready for my favorite part. Okay. So we're getting ready for our Jackass of the Week Award. Now this week, it's actually a female, a Jenny, if you will. Okay. And I'm going to get it here in just a second here. Okay. Alrighty. Oh, sorry, folks. <laughs> okay. Give me a second here. We got to set this up. I'm not too good with, you know. Uh, I'm I'm not really too good with uh, uh, tech. Okay, so now we're getting ready. Our jackass or Jenny of the week. 
going to get my volume set up here. Here we go. Welcome to the Jackass of the Week Award presented by Progressive News Network. Oh, I love the sound of that braying. Here we go. This week, the Jackass, or I should say Jenny of the Week Award, goes to former presidential candidate and uh, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Apparently, Tulsi said she's leaving the Democratic Party, and we've got um, uh, I've got an article in front of me, October 12th, from NPR, National Public Radio. Um, apparently, Tulsi has her own podcast, and um, what she had to say was, was really insulting, okay, um, beyond the belief. Um, she said, quote, I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party. It's now under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers driven by cowardly wokeness, end quote. Okay, so I'm going to go find this actual statement, all right? Um, Where is it here? All righty. I think this is Instagram here. I want to read it exactly as stated. She's such an ass. Yeah, here we go. Um, Let's see. Here we go. She said, quote, our country was founded on the foundation of freedom. Like me and every soldier that's ever served, General Don John, no, General Don Bolduc took an oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. He remains deeply committed to that oath. At a time when our fundamental freedoms are under attack, I have no doubt he will do all he can to stand up to those in Washington who seek to undermine our God-given civil liberties enshrined in the Constitution. That's why I'm supporting, apparently, this guy's running for office, end quote. Okay, summer Instagram account. All right. I am so tired of this spoiled woman. Okay, first of all, she comes from a political family. Um, let's see if I can find the exact statement here. You know, I remember, yeah, there it is here. Yeah, okay, it was on her Facebook as well. I remember back in 2015-2016 election cycle, uh, she came on board with the Bernie Sanders campaign, and a lot of progressive men were just going, "Ooh, Tulsi's so hot," and they were just in lust with her. Now, this ties into the fact: whenever I ask, there are people I know, and when you try and talk issues, they'll say, "Yeah, I hear what you're saying about the issues, but I just don't like the candidate." I can honestly say I don't vote for somebody based on whether I like them or don't like them. I look at positions because when you are voting for somebody, you are hiring somebody to represent your and the rest of our interests. You don't need to like them. That's just silly. But she made so many. First of all, she's leaving the Democratic Party. I only have one thing to say about that. Good riddance to bad rubbish. Um. Tulsi has a history of bigoted commentary. Um, she's incredibly homophobic, homophobic and transphobic. So she's done incredible damage to the LGBTQ community. Um, 
she also has, um, I think she, she went from being pro-choice to anti-choice, but don't quote me on that. And, you know, the fact is she's been a warmonger, all right? She has never voted to even reduce funding, like wasteful funding to the Pentagon or, D, or uh, DOD, Department of Defense. She never has. Um, she's voted for every war. Okay, and 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 there's more than that. All right, but let's go back to what Tulsi has done here. Okay, um, so you know she's accusing the party of wokeness. Now, first of all, I would ask her, Tulsi, do you even know what the hell woke means? You know, the entire GOP is using this this term that the kids use, and. Again, don't quote me because I'm certainly no expert. To me, being woke means that you are not only aware of the facts on the ground, but you have a moral and ethical grounding in being fair, period, and having rule of law represent everybody. And But what the GOP has done, because the term woke and wokeness came about from youth in in the black community particularly, they're using the term woke as well as critical race theory as basically bigoted dog whistles, okay? So if, if you find yourself getting angry at the idea of somebody being woke, or if you find yourself making fun of the idea of wokeness, then yeah, you are racist, Maybe not to the same level of George Wallace or the head of the KKK. There are varying degrees, I'll grant you that. But yeah, you're racist then because you resent anything that comes from communities of color. You're still actively embracing the idea that white Christian straight culture is going uh, to be viewed as superior to anything else, even though it's not. That's what this is. This is just a dog whistle. Period. And Tulsi Gabbard, she's a political whore. I didn't, I didn't believe her line of bull back in 2016 at all. Because unlike some of the men, the young men that were working for Bernie as well, I actually checked her voting record. Okay, instead of focusing on, oh, she's hot. Don't care. Not to mention the fact that Tulsi you know, comes from some uh, privilege herself. Now, true, she is a U.S. Army Reserve officer, okay? She was in public affairs, all right? Uh, Let's look at this. She was born, um, let's see now. Okay, I lost my place here. I'm sorry. Um. You know, Tulsi, basically, her mother, she's Samoan, and her dad, I believe, is white. So she is Samoan and European ancestry. Um, No, her father was American Samoan. I stand corrected. Okay. So this is, um, I'm looking this up here. I'm sorry, folks. Keep in mind, Tulsi Gabbard has been in elected office since she was 21 years old. Okay? 
that she was elected in 2002. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's in politics too long. She has never, apparently very rarely, held a job outside of politics. Okay? Um, You know, in terms of her political stances, you know, and her actual voting record, you know, once again, um, okay, I'm sorry, folks, I lost my place here. So, sorry that I'm kind of going back and forth here. So, Tulsi, basically, let me go here. Sorry, folks, I lost my place. Don't you just love this? All righty. Now, Tulsi has some unusual friends, too. That's the other thing. Uh, It was recorded that shortly after Donald Trump's inauguration, she met with him. She met with him instead of marching with all the other women in D.C. Okay? Um, So... Okay, I lost my, hold on a second, folks. Where is it? I'm sorry, folks. Um, oh, sorry about it. So she's leaving the party, according to NPR. Okay, and... Uh, But here she is. She met with Trump and she met with Bashar Assad of Syria. So let's go back here. So as of 2017, um, this was recorded in The Guardian. uh, This was an article written by Sabrina Siddiqui. And why am I going back to 2017? Because it shows that Tulsi Gabbard has never really been a progressive. That's nonsense. Um, This article says Tulsi Gabbard reveals she met Assad in Syria without informing top Democrats. Hawaiian congresswoman claims she went on a fact-finding mission in support of peace for Syrian people but characterized U.S.-backed rebels as terrorists. First of all, there is a federal law that says unless the government sends you specifically, you can't negotiate with a foreign government. She broke federal law there. And being in the military, she knows better. Um, She met with Assad, and her excuse was, quote, um, she told back in 2017 CNN's Jake Tapper, quote, initially I hadn't planned on meeting him. When the opportunity arose to meet with him, I did so because I felt it's important that if we profess to truly care about the Syrian people, about their suffering, then we've got to be able to meet with anyone that we need to if there's a possibility we could achieve peace, and that's exactly what we talked about, end quote. Except being in the military, she knows what she did violated federal law. She's not an actual diplomat. And that that federal law is called the Logan Act, okay? And the Logan Act says, no, unauthorized individuals cannot confer or negotiate with a foreign government on behalf of the United States. And right now, and as of 2017, the U.S. did not have any diplomatic relations with Syria, but, again, Tulsi got away with it because she had her fanboys. All right? And now, Adam Kinzinger, once again, back in 2017, did condemn what Gabbard did. 
Okay? He said, quote, back in 2017, Kinzinger said, quote, it is sad and a shame and a disgrace. In no way should any member of Congress, should any government official ever travel to meet with a guy that has killed 500,000 people and 50,000 children, end quote. And he was right. Okay? Kinzinger, again, went further said, quote, she has the audacity to say that everywhere she went, people supported Assad. Of course, when you have an Assad-led tour, he's only going to take you to places where people like him, end quote. Again, Tulsi is fine as long as she gets what she wants. Okay? Then Senator John McCain in 2017 um, did go to Syria in 2013 to meet opposition groups. Um, he said also that Gabbard's visit, quote, sends the wrong signal. It kind of legitimizes a guy who butchered 400,000 of his own people, end quote. Okay? So, once again, Tulsi, you know, was fine with it, though. She wanted that headline. She just did. Um, and prior, I'd say as of 2012, she was regarded as kind of this idea of a rising star, kind of like a female hot version of Barack Obama, whatever. But there's nothing progressive about this woman. Nothing. And to add insult to injury, shortly after Donald Trump's inauguration, Tulsi Gabbard met and conferred with Trump instead of marching with all the other women in D.C. Now, if that doesn't tell you where Tulsi Gabbard's uh, sentiments lie, nothing else does. So for that and for so many other things, and I apologize if I rambled a bit, Tulsi Gabbard gets the Jackass of the Week Award. Bray on, Tulsi, bray on. What can I say, Tulsi? You skanky. All right. So now, that's our show for today. I hope you learned something. Um, we're going to continue on. Uh, if you like our show, please press like. Please share widely. That's how we get the message out. There's no paywall. Um, and, again, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we're going to be combining shows after this. For that, I say good night and God bless us because we're certainly going to need it. <laughs>